The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. All right, church, I'm ready to get back into uh, Nehemiah this morning. We're looking at the end of chapter 1 and then all of chapter 2. Um, as we know, there were no chapter headings for... Um, uh, when uh, the scriptures were written, and so uh, I find it strange sometimes where the chapter breaks are. Uh, but chapter 1 ends with this. I was cupbearer to the king. So that's Nehemiah uh, describing his job, his role, his calling to life to this point. He was a cupbearer to the king. And then we read chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. You see, the, 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 the cupbearer was never to be sad in the presence of the king. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad, however, when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, Well, what is it you want? And I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my fathers are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked him, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? Will it please the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the valleys of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up to the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would do, uh, be doing the work. But then I said to them, 
You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? And I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We his servants will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Love the boldness. Let's go to God and see what he might teach us through this passage. Father, we thank you for this history. We thank you we can look back and read the history of our people and and see how whereas they were unfaithful so many times that you moved in the hearts of men, you, you put your hand upon leaders that would believe you for the people. God, we thank you that there, is, there was rebuilding to be done then. There was faith to be had and there was a life of prayer to be displayed. God, we even thank You that we can look in this passage and see that there were those that ridiculed and mocked and were skeptical and didn't believe and made fun of the people of God. But we thank You because of the conviction of call that Nehemiah stood strong upon Your promises in order to do Your work. So God, it's my prayer this morning that you would come by your Spirit and you would stir up in the hearts of each one of us a passion to rebuild, a passion to restore, a passion to look around us and to grieve the state of your kingdom. But, oh God, to drop on our knees and to listen to you in prayer, how you would employ us specifically to get to building. Oh, Father, show us our purpose. Show us that we have a purpose. And, oh, God, would you speak to our hearts this morning. This is work too lofty for any man, any woman. So we pray for your spirit. We pray for your word to pierce our hearts. We pray for repentance, and yet we pray for faith. And we do so boldly, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, last weekend, uh, Rachel and I had our uh, three-year-old grandson, Silas, over to the house, and uh, he spent the night, and, and Silas, like... Most boys, a lot of girls too, uh, love to build things with Legos. And uh, for me, Legos used to be those little tiny things uh, that you would build with, but now they have these extra large Legos, uh, and I love them, and so do my grandchildren. And so Silas and I were building what, I don't know how, I guess maybe I originated this whole idea of building a tall tower. That's what we call it. Uh, so, Bapa, let's build a tall tower. All right, so what we do, it's, it's not rocket science. 
science. It's build the tallest thing we can possibly, you know, build. And the, the higher it gets, the more excited he gets. And, you know, he, he comes up to it. It's above me. It's taller than me. And then I can get it up here. And, you know, it's kind of wobbling. And he's going, oh, it's bigger than Papa, you know. And, and then finally, at some point, it's highly predictable. He'll come over and he'll just kick it. And Legos will go everywhere. And we'll laugh and we'll pick them all up and we'll start right over again. And as I was reading the text this morning and thinking about Israel and the history of Israel, I thought, you know what? That's life. <laughs> we build and it gets knocked down. And we either start building again or we don't. And that's where the people of God have always been. Uh, the people of God were slaves for 400 years and then they were released only to wander for 40 and then they built Jerusalem, but in uh, 486, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the Babylonian king, came in and, and tore down the walls and burned the city gates and tore down the temple and its altar. And, and God took them as slaves exiled in Babylon. And yet, do you remember what God tells them to do in Babylon? It's interesting. He doesn't have him in this holding pattern just saying, hey, just wait, i got something coming in about 70 years. No. Listen to Jeremiah 29. These are the words of the letter to Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles. So Jeremiah is a prophet to uh, Israel who and Judah in exile. And to the priests and prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses. And live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and daughters and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. I mean, we could spend the next year unpacking this. You are in an evil land. You are being governed by a tyrant, a God-hating tyrant. You seek the welfare of the city. Because as the city is blessed, you're going to be blessed. And behold, it happens. Nebuchadnezzar, dead and gone. Cyrus, the new Persian king, Persia takes over Babylon. And, 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 and what does God do? God moves in the heart of Cyrus to issue a decree that Israel can go back to Jerusalem. Wow. You see, during those moments when it seemed like God was not at work, when it just seemed like, hey, we're just in this foreign land building houses for nothing, uh, having weddings and having children and raising families, and here we are, whatever, whatever, we're, you know, God was at work. And dear friends, God is at work right now in your life and mine. And it doesn't feel like it, does it? But God is at work. 
You see, God raises up Ezra, then He raises up Nehemiah to go back to the city to rebuild. And it seems so pointless. We've got to rebuild again, and we know how the history goes. Even the wall that Nehemiah uh, built was torn down later on by other uh, evil men. But that's not the point. The point is, in this broken and fallen world, are we going to be rebuilders and restorers or just consumers? Do you see it? This is how God chooses to change the world. It's by us faithfully looking around our lives, seeing the walls that have been torn down, the gates that have been burned, and building them back for the glory of God. The the purpose is not the finished product of the building. The purpose is the building and who we are in the midst of the building. It's being the people of God stepping out and saying, we will not lose hope. This world is God's and we're going to rebuild. We're going to rebuild our broken marriages. We're going to rebuild our broken economies. We're going to rebuild our broken education system. We don't just sit there as victims and consumers, either consumers in our private schools or victims in our... saying there's not, We say no, we are about God and this world because it's His and we're going to rebuild and we're going to restore. Do you see it? So we as a community, as we are building and restoring, sometimes gathering together to restore even old buildings... Because it means something to the city, not just to us, to the city and to the world. Do you get it? That's why God has you here. That's why God has me here. It's not to build personal wealth. It's not just to, uh, to, for pleasure. But God has given His people a calling. And as we fulfill that calling, as the people of God, the world is changed. And God is glorified. Think about it. Number one. This Pat, man, even when I was reading it, I was seeing things. I mean, there's so much in this passage. I'm not going to be able to do it all. Uh, but we got a lot of work to do, so let's get to it. First, God calls each one of us in this room to build His kingdom. Period. Last Sunday, uh, Terrence and Yanae and Justice and some volunteers uh, took our youth around the neighborhood. That's right. I'm I'm about to talk about you, Rashar. Uh, (laughs) He's already excited. Um, And they went around the neighborhood to find men and women who were living on the street and give them uh, just baggies of of essentials. Um, I I don't even know what was in the bag. doesn't matter. Just wanted to bless those living on the street around our neighborhood. And Richard, um, all of a sudden, came to life. And he was calling guys on the street corner, come over here, let's gather, we're going to pray. And guys were putting down their whiskey bottles and coming around and holding hands and and 13-year-old Richard was praying. And at the end saying, I'm on fire! Have you ever been on fire? Have you ever had that feeling that I am doing something bigger than me? That I'm serving God, the God of heaven and earth? I'm not just going to work. I'm not just punching a card. I'm not just doing a paper for school. I'm not just sticking in this marriage for what... 
I am serving the living God and this is what I've been made for. I mean, this is what we see throughout the Scriptures. We were created, each one of us, to work for God. We were created for work. I, I, I see this in, um, in the prison system. I've been looking and reading some about our prison system with, you know, Just Mercy, Brian Stevenson, and others. And, uh, and I, I've done some study just on uh, solitary confinement, and it's, destru- it's so destructive. It's horrible. The, um, you know, my friend Josh Spickler, who is a uh, public defender uh, at 201, he's really brought attention to the, um, I think, the 16-year-old girl that was um, kept in um, solitary confinement in Nashville for over six months, and I think she's still there. And you say, well, what's the big deal? You know, she did some bad, and she did do some bad. She actually murdered somebody associated with his body. She did some bad things. That's not the point. But the point is that you will lose your mind in solitary confinement because we were not made for idleness. And there is no greater, deeper experience of idleness than four walls, three by five or six, and a cot. On the flip side of that, on the positive side of that, I read an article um, distributed by the National Institute of Justice. They did a study on those in prison who um, uh, who enter a partnership with a company on the outside. So not only making like license plates for the state or you know just punching holes, but they have a job in the the prison system in jail that um, is actually meaningful. And and here's what they say: offenders who work for private companies while in prison obtained employment more quickly, we can see that, but they also maintained that employment longer and had lower recidivism rates than those who worked in traditional correctional industries or who were involved in other than work activities. Do you see it? They had purpose in life. They had meaning. They had a a trajectory. And yes, I don't want to go back to jail if I've got something to live for. Do you see it? We were made for that. However, work is not an end in and of itself. All right? If we just work for work, it dries up our soul and it makes us really, really bad people. John Lair in Wired Magazine said this uh, in his article, Why Money Makes Us Unhappy. He said, money is surprisingly bad at making us happy. Here's a qualification. I like this. Once we escape the trap of poverty, so it can bring some happiness. <laughs> if you're poor and you don't have food, uh, it's going to bring some happiness. All right. So he, he gives us that. Um, Once we escape the trap of poverty, levels of wealth have an extremely modest impact on levels of happiness, especially in developed countries. Even worse, it appears that the richest nation in history, 21st century America, is slowly getting less pleased with life. So the economists put it like this, as as the economists behind this recent analysis concluded, in the United States, the psychological well-being of successive birth cohorts has gradually fallen through time. The better our economy gets, the least happy, the less happy we are. Wow. Wow. You see, we weren't made only to work, but we made... 
we were made to work. Tim Keller points this out in his book, Every Good Endeavor. And if you really want to get into this, if you're like, man, I wish I could just see, I want to read more, get that book, Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller. This is what he says. According to the Bible, we don't merely need the money from work to survive. We need the work itself to survive and live fully human lives. Dear friends, you were not made for pointlessness. You weren't made not to work. We are all made to work from beginning to end. The best thing you can do is teach your children how to work. The best thing you can do is when they get of age is to tell them to get a job. From 13, 12, whatever. The best thing you can do is say, work your way through college. I'm sorry, college students. You're like, oh, I hate you right now. My parents are here. Why? Because we weren't made not to work. We were made to be productive. And yes, school can be our job. We'll have that conversation at lunch if you, if you want to have it. Um, but secondly, it's not just for work's sake, but we work for God. Now, if you look at the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, these books were written by Moses after 400 years of slavery. So the people of God know what it's like to, to live for a taskmaster. They didn't have a day off, they never got paid, and all they did was work. And so the very first thing that Moses does is he tells them about the world in which they live and the world that God, if, when God is in charge, when, when you, we walk into this kind of city that we're about to go create as we cross the Jordan River and get into the land of Canaan, this is how the city of God is going to be different from the city of the world. You are going to work six days and you're going to be off the seventh. Now when you've never had a day off in your entire life, life, that stands out. Now us, we, we're like, work six days? Man, I'm only working five. I'm only putting four. Okay, well, you got to get in their skin, alright? We, we interpret it and receive it a little different than they did, so historical context, you got to get there. You get to Deuteronomy. When you farm, you, you, you know, do it with all your heart, but do not harvest the outer layers of your, your uh, farm. Why? So that when um, the poor, the marginalized, the stranger, the alien is coming through the land, they have something to eat. So you don't just work for yourself. You don't just become greedy capitalists. You work for the glory of God and the good of others. Now Paul summarizes this in Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. How do you get through a job? How do you get through school? How do you get through those classes that you have no interest in? How do you work in a job where, you know, uh, it's just miserable? I think there are, oh man, we had a strategic planning time. We brought in a um, consultant on Friday to, to work with our staff, and he gave a statistic. Basically what he was saying was that 70% of the workforce uh, is not bought into their job. They just do it for the paycheck. They're not really engaged. They have no ownership in the company. They're just there to get a check. Now, that's a problem for us as believers. Because what Paul is saying here is, no, you have a stake even, even, if 
you're working for a master because you're not really working for that master, you're working for me. Wow, that's hard. Uh, And then Ephesians 4.28, if anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer. Why? Because stealing is bad. No, it is bad, but why? Uh, You must work doing something useful with your hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Why do we work? It's not to build our personal wealth. We work so we have something to share with our families and with our neighbors and with our city and with our world and with our church family. So where are you getting all this, Richard? The very first thing we read, I was a cupbearer to the king. (laughs) That's all Nehemiah was. I've been st- I've been looking for sources like who is this Nehemiah guy? All we know about him, I was a cupbearer to the king. He must have known, as a cupbearer to the king, that he was not working for that king. He had to have had a higher purpose than that. We see it really in the next point. We're all built and called to build God's kingdom, but secondly, God will move in your heart to rebuild broken walls in the context of your everyday obedience. We know more about Nehemiah because of his everyday obedience leading up to this point than we do by him building the wall. Let me build my case on this. So many people ask me, and now even more, uh, actually Memphis Magazine, Michael Davis and I sat right here with somebody from Memphis Magazine. They're going to, an article's coming out in the next issue, which may come out this month. I'm not real sure, but it's the March issue. And um, anyway, the first question anybody asks in that scenario is, well, why did you plant downtown church? And my answer is the same answer that Nehemiah gives. Look at verses 11 through 12 of chapter 2. So when I went to Jerusalem and was there three days, then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put on my heart. How did Nehemiah build a wall? God gave him a conviction. He wasn't even in the, he was not a builder. He's a cupbearer. You know what a cupbearer is? Do you know what a cupbearer does? Here, let me taste that first. Do you know how much skill it takes to be a cupbearer? Zero. Can you turn a cup up? You could be a cupbearer. Now, it was a little frightening. The risks were high. You know, if there was poison in it, your job's over, so is your life. But, hey. But he's a, God chose a cupbearer to restore the wall around Jerusalem. Do you feel insignificant right now? But how did he become the cupbearer? Everyday obedience. I'm going to be the best cupbearer that King Artaxerxes has ever had. How did he even get the job of cupbearer? Because the cupbearer was the most trusted person. The king trusted Artaxerxes even more than his own wife. So how did did Nehemiah gain the trust of the king? Everyday 
simple faithfulness. He never, ever, ever gave the king a reason to doubt him. Even to the point that in our passage, you remember how it said, what's wrong with you? You must be sad because you're not sick. The king had never seen him sad I mean, that's, have you, can you look back at all your work and say, I have gone to work every, my people have never seen me sad. No! I mean, people are asking me sometimes, what's wrong? I'm like, I don't know. I didn't even know I was sad. But apparently the look on my face is I'm sad, you know. The king had never detected that he was even sad. That's how faithful he was because he knew it's not my job to be sad. The king's got enough on him. I've got to be happy even when I'm not happy. I've got to put on this front because it's the king, it's not me. Man, there's some life lessons right there. And we see that God had put this on Nehemiah's heart by the simple fact that He knows what is going to... He's got a plan. I mean, as soon as the king says, well, what's wrong? You're not sad. Well, how could I be happy when the condition of, of my people and the wall in Jerusalem is torn down? And then the king says, well, what is this you want me to do? What, what are you asking me? And Nehemiah doesn't say, I don't know, let me go do a three-year plan and then I'll come back. He said, oh really? Okay, here's the plan. He's already thought about the plan. I need a letter to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they you know, will know that I'm going to do your will. I need a letter uh, to Asaph because he's got all your timber and I'm going to need natural resources and supplies to build um, the wall and the city gates and the house that I'm going to live in. Uh, I mean, he just goes down this list because he has planned. You know, it's so interesting. I envisioned this church 18 years before I ever had a conversation about this church. And that's not, there's nothing spiritual about that. It's just God had put it on my heart. And every time I would come back to Memphis and there'd be days when, you know, I would be thinking about a, the church that could be a bridge between, um, you know, the under-resourced and the resource that could bring people together and we could be the people of God. And, and we, you know, we, we would uh, see God break down all the walls that the world and our flesh have, you know, in our historical context have built. And, and through the church, the city can be changed. That's just how I thought about it and got more detail over time so that when Second Presbyterian Church, when some guys reached out to me and said, hey, we want to have breakfast, we're kind of thinking about planting a church downtown. I sat down and I gave them this plan and they were literally stunned. They didn't interview anybody else. They were like, this guy's got a calling. And then I said, no, I don't have a calling. I've just been thinking about it. See, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to make myself look good. I ran from God. I was, at that point, I was Jonah. And, uh, you know, I was like, no, 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 I'm loving where I am out here in Colorado. But I had been thinking about it. Why? Because God had put it on my heart. Dear friend, what is God putting on your heart that you're there? You're stewing on it. You've been stewing on it for years, maybe just days, maybe just hours. You've been stewing on it. But you always have that but. Yeah, but I mean, I can't. That's not me. That's not me. I don't know. Notice also that Nehemiah is still dependent on God even though he's got the plan and he probably got the plan from God through prayer. But look at uh, verse 4 of chapter 2. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? 
What does he do? So I pray to the God of heaven. Now imagine this. The king says, so what is this you're requesting? And Nehemiah does say, give me a second. Almighty God, please help me because if I tick this man off, he could cut my head off right here. Okay, now let me give you my plan. Do you see? There is dependence upon God. What we see here is Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. We see active dependence. What we see here is that Nehemiah is not saying, oh, I can build that wall because I'm an engineer and I did this. No, he's saying God has called me to build the wall. I have no idea how it's going to happen, but I'm going to walk in faith that it's going to happen and I'm going to walk on my knees because I know that I need God, so I'm going to be in prayer. You see, the the line between dependence upon God and dependence upon self is prayer. Do not think that you are depending on God if you are not praying. Do not think that you are not trusting yourself if you are not praying. The only way you know that you're depending on God is if you are living a life of prayer. And then we also see in Nehemiah, we, again, we don't know any, much about this guy, but one thing we do know is that he must have had a Joshua 24 kind of event in his life. Listen to Joshua 24. Choose this day, everybody's heard this, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers, uh, the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You see, Nehemiah is mourning the condition of the kingdom because he has determined and committed himself to serving the Lord. The condition of the kingdom of God is more important to him than his own condition. So much so that he's willing to give up not only his cushy job as cupbearer, but also his life to go do it. And that's how you know that somebody's called. That's how you know that you're being moved by God. You're willing to pay some price. And yet, here's the reality. How long had Nehemiah been a cupbearer to the king before he got this grandiose vision and movement of heart to go build the wall? We have no idea. Was it three years, five years, ten years, twenty years, thirty years? We don't know. I planted two churches before God moved my heart and called us to plant this church. And I often look back, I'm like, what was God doing? Why did He have me plant churches that people that I love, people that I still look on as brothers and sisters, and then rip me out of there and take me halfway across the country, and then I do it again, I give it everything I have, we, we build some of the best friendships we've ever had, we're close, and then say, come back to... I don't know. But He's the builder, not me. And He's your builder, not you. He is your boss. He is the one calling the plays. And yes, at times you can look back and go, man, I can see the wisdom of God in giving me those experiences and bringing me into these relationships. I see exactly how He... But other times you can't. But here's what I'm getting to. So many, especially young people today, I hear, I want to do something great for God. That's awesome. I applaud you. But you've got to do something small for God until you do something great for God. 
You've got to do something consistent for God until you do something famous for God. You hear me? You may spend years pining away, reading, studying, praying, talking, whatever it is God's called you to do, until he, you finally go, ah. I love one of my favorite professors at, um, in seminary. Uh, he went to Harvard grad school. His name is Richard Pratt. And he said, yeah, you know, I put my um, um, diploma in my bathroom over my toilet <laughs> to remind myself how, what it's really worth. Like, wow. Um, and he also said, he was in his, like, I think he was 30 years old. I mean, the dude is brilliant. And he said, yep, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to get out. I'm not going to start believing God for something big until I'm at least 40 because I know I'm not ready. We need more of that today. We need that understanding that I may be in this classroom for 10, 15, 20, 30 years before. I may be... We need that because God's vision is so long-term. So long term. But what he but he's not wasting it. He is refining you. He is training you. He's preparing you for whatever it is. But he's using you in the process. There are two aspects to the call of God in our lives, and then we're going to finish up. I want to hit this though pretty hard. Two aspects to the call of God in our lives. There is the uh, revealed will of God, and there's the hidden will of God. Everybody in here, all you got to do is pick up this book to understand the revealed will of God. Jesus says, follow me. You want to know the will of God for your life? There it is. Follow Jesus. God says, don't Steal, murder, commit adultery, don't covet your neighbor's wife. There it is. Uh, God says, be a generous sharer. Tithe, but yeah, you know what? The Old Testament tithe is nothing. You should give more than 10%. You should give in light of the grace of Jesus Christ that's been poured out to you. So what does God's reveal will for you? Be utterly generous. Give more than, than you want to. God's revealed will. You get it. Uh, is it God's revealed will for me to be having sex before I'm married? No, it's not. You can't justify that. That is His revealed will. Now, until we are taking the revealed will of God seriously, the hidden will of God over here is going to be very ambiguous to us. Until we are willing to say, God, I am serious about following You, like we said earlier. Now, it's not about your righteousness. But unless you're willing to say, I want to bring my life around this, I'm going to struggle, and even as I fall, even as I fail, I am going to press into your grace, I'm going to receive it, I'm going to get up again, I'm going to hit it hard the next day, I'm going to stay in this relationship, I'm going to stay in this marriage, I'm going to stay after these children you gave me, I'm going to, I'm going to be faithful even if you don't give me children. Do you see it? It's, I'm going to be faithful, I'm going to get into what I know you've called me to do, I don't understand, I don't like it sometimes, I'm a, but I'm going to live right here. And then just maybe, God will begin to make clear what His hidden will of God is. Go, go to this job. Go to that person. Go plant this church. See? So are you being faithful in the little things so that God can entrust something bigger? 
And thirdly and finally, and very shortly, assurance of God's call motivates boldness to fulfill that call. <laughs> Let me say it again. Assurance of God's call motivates boldness to fulfill that call. Let me just tell you, there have been many moments when I've looked at God and said, God, did I hear you right? I mean, I've told you, you know, house burning down, uh, you know, herniated disc in my neck, Rachel's torn labrum, auditing, you know, the IRS auditing them. I mean, I, you know, scandalous, worshipfully. I mean, I can just go on and on and on and on and on. Many dark nights, God, you sure? But it was the call, it was that understanding, I know God called me. I know it. I know it. And you see, I believe it's that. Here's Nehemiah who's never built a wall in his life, never built a gate in his life. He, he, he says, okay guys, this is the condition in verses 17 through 18. Let's get, it, let's get it going. And what do they say? They replied, let us start building. Why? Because he was believable. They believed they could follow him because he lacked the expertise, but they knew he had the calling. I don't know how that speaks to you, but dear friends, it speaks to you. And then the last part is, the skeptics started calling out. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the, the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. What are you rebel- Why are you, are you rebelling against the king? Whenever you do the will of God, I promise you it is not going to feel like a downward slide. It's going to feel like an uphill run. It is never easy because the devil hates it and so does the world. And it will come at you the bigger the vision, the bigger the project, the more the opposition. And yet listen to the conviction of Nehemiah, a plain man, a, a, a cupbearer. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven and earth will give us success. We are His servants and we will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem, nor any claim or historic right to it. Wow. That's kind of a drop-the-mic moment. That is a perfect place to, for chapter break. Uh, and there is one. Isn't that beautiful? Because when you know that you're doing the call of God, you say, get back. Because I am serving my God, the King. I'm not serving you. Even if you are the King, I'm not serving in you. Because I have a King that is higher. And He has come and He has given His life for me. He has ransomed me. He has atoned for my sin. He has bought and paid for me. And I listen to Him before I listen to anybody else. And it doesn't matter about the odds. It doesn't matter how high the mountain is. It doesn't matter what my skeptics are saying. It doesn't matter even what I'm thinking sometimes when I'm down because I am prone to get down. What matters is that my God has told me to do it and I will do it by His power. Where are you, dear friend? Where are you? What impossible situation are you in this morning? Hear these words. The God of heaven and earth will give you success. 
How do you, do you feel down? Do you feel like you can't go forward? Your confidence is not in the situation or the circumstances even changing. Your confidence is in the God of heaven and earth who is unmovable. The God of heaven and earth who said, you believe me and I'll move mountains. You believe me and I will show up and give you love and I'll make you somebody. You, you'll look in the mirror and go, I don't even know who that is. I can't believe I just said that to these people. Do you see it? Is God your strength? Is God your confidence? Are you fulfilling His call on your life? Are you listening to Him? Are you being faithful to Him in the midst of the small things so that He can entrust bigger things to you? Oh, dear friends, it is my passionate prayer that the city of Memphis and beyond someday tells a story about a small group, maybe a growing group, called Downtown Church that said, but God. That said, we believe God. Don't you tell us what we can and cannot do. We see what God has called us to do and we're going to do it no matter the price, no matter how it feels, no matter the cost. And we're going to do it with all we are for the glory of God, repenting and believing all the way to glory. Oh, dear friend, I hope this encourages you if you're discouraged. I hope that Jesus can be known to you right now as a friend who's going to walk with you and for you. If you want to know this kind of God, dear friend, all you have to do is open your heart to Him. All you have to do is say, I am done living in my own strength, and I choose you. And what you'll find is He really chose you. (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? That He just gave you the faith to even believe in the, the stirring that's in your heart right now. Would you believe God for yourself this morning? Would you get over all of your fear, all of your anxiety, your pride and your arrogance, and would you just give your life to Jesus? He is available. He is free for you. And He will bring meaning and purpose right where you are from this point forward. I'm going to ask our elders to come forward, our community group leaders. And if you want to give your life to Jesus, feel free to come forward. Um, If you want to just pray right where you are, that's great as well. If you have a burden, if you're in a job, um, if you're in a place in life and you just feel heavy and you know you need brothers and sisters praying for you, please come forward and let them pray for you. Uh, just, just pour out your heart to them. Don't walk out of here alone and like, you know, you can do it all yourself. You can't. God can do it for you. God can do it with you, but God can do it through brothers and sisters like this. So let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Even as we give to Him our tithes and offerings, come forward for prayer if that is the moving of your heart this morning. Amen.